Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 13th. In today's news, an acrimonious Supreme Court confirmation hearing gets underway. A COVID-19 reinfection in Nevada adds to questions about immunity. And John McCain's mom passes away at 108. She was a real spitfire. But first, the big idea. Few masks were inside on Monday as President Trump returned to the campaign trail and once again downplayed the coronavirus. The president criticized public health guidance, saying the cure could not be worse than the problem itself. If you want to get out there, he said, get out there. Trump dubiously claimed that he is now immune, though none of his doctors have said that. And he added, quote, this is a real quote. I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women, everybody. I'll just give you a fat kiss. Trump's return to the campaign trail with back-to-back-to-back rallies for the rest of the week is being entirely driven by Trump himself. His schedule so far reflects the frenetic energy of a man trying to not just outrun a deadly illness, but outrun looming electoral defeat. After rallies the first half of this week in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Iowa, his first trip there of the general election, Trump is expected to return to Florida on Thursday and Friday, as well as hold more rallies over the weekend, probably in Ohio and Wisconsin. The president is also looking to schedule the rally soon in North Carolina. Joe Biden campaigned on Monday in Ohio, a state Trump won easily four years ago, but Obama and Biden carried twice in 2008 and 2012. Biden's going today to Florida, which polls show is neck and neck. Biden said in Toledo that Trump's reckless personal conduct since his diagnosis has been unconscionable. The former vice president tested negative yesterday for the coronavirus, his seventh negative test since the day Trump announced his diagnosis. Meanwhile, White House physician Sean Conley said yesterday that the president recently tested negative on, quote, consecutive days, although he did not specify which days. Eric Trump, the president's son, last night, canceled a campaign event that was scheduled for this afternoon at a Michigan gun shop after one of its former employees was linked to the domestic terror plot against Governor Gretchen Whitmer. One of the 13 men arrested last week and charged with planning to kidnap the governor and overthrow the government worked earlier this year on the shooting range at Huron Valley Guns in New Hudson, Michigan, where the president's son was going to headline what was billed as a Make America Great Again rally. The store posted on Facebook last night that the suspect was fired after three weeks on the job because they found him, quote, a little odd, and he would show up for work in a lot of tactical gear. The gun store said in its Facebook post that changing the venue to another gun store was the right call because, quote, the governor would have had a field day against the Trump campaign. They would accuse the administration of sending his son to a facility where terrorists work and train, end quote. Meanwhile, voting continues in America. Voters waited for as long as 10 hours yesterday across Atlanta and surrounding suburbs to cast their ballots on the first day of early voting in Georgia, leading some to give up and raising questions about whether election officials are prepared for what's shaping up to be a historic early voting season. The scenes in Georgia were reminiscent of the problem-plagued primary that they already had in June when limited polling locations and a rocky rollout of new machines caused voting backups across the state. Some allege that this is voter suppression in another form. But on Monday, a huge turnout appeared to be a major force in driving the long lines, along with scattered reports of technical problems. 
Where the lines were longest was the state's heavily Democratic strongholds around Atlanta, Augusta, Savannah, and Macon. Hours-long waits were also reported in smaller, more conservative counties, including Loundis and Floyd. By last night, the state said at least 120,000 voters had cast their ballots on the first day. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett presented herself to the nation yesterday as a humble and apolitical judge, opening a pandemic-altered Senate confirmation hearing that Democrats tried to make as much about health care, COVID, and Trump as about Barrett's qualifications. It was the start of what will be a nasty four days, as Republicans embarked just weeks before the election on a historic move to cement a 6-3 to three conservative majority on the high court. Democrats acknowledge that there is nothing they can really do to stop Barrett's confirmation. The nominee, who spoke at the end of the day for just 12 minutes, wore a black mask for the entire hearing. Several members of the committee participated remotely, one because he has tested positive for the coronavirus, others because they're concerned about getting it. Barrett, along with her husband Jesse and six of her seven children behind her, was largely a bystander on the opening day. Instead, Republicans and Democrats each gave opening statements and talked at each other for about five hours. Questioning will begin today. Number two. A Nevada man has become the first published and confirmed case of COVID reinfection inside the United States, adding to a number of examples worldwide, signaling that patients who have recovered from the disease may still be at risk of getting it again. In a paper out this morning in the medical journal Lancet, a group of authors, including researchers at the University of Nevada, explain in detail the case of a 25-year-old who suffered two bouts, one confirmed through testing in mid-April and the second in early June. Symptoms of the second case started in late May, a month after the patient reported his initial symptoms from the first case as having been fully resolved. The two strains of virus detected by the tests were genetically distinct, meaning that it is very unlikely that the man simply remained unknowingly infected with the virus in one long case. The Wall Street Journal notes that this second case of COVID was far more severe than the first, requiring supplemental oxygen and admission to a hospital after he suffered from shortness of breath. This Nevada case comes after similar reinfection case reports have been bubbling up from locations like Hong Kong, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Ecuador. The growing number of examples in the literature bolsters evidence that immunity might, in at least some cases, only last for a limited period, similar, frankly, to the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Back here in the United States, the seven-day rolling average of new infections again hit record highs in 17 different states on Monday, and six other states additionally set records for coronavirus-related hospitalizations. And the second wave over in Europe is leading to new restrictions, but no national lockdowns yet. England has seen its new coronavirus cases quadruple in the past three weeks. They now have more COVID patients hospitalized than at any time since before the government imposed its lockdown in March. But like much of Europe, Britain's pursuing targeted local restrictions, like mandating that all pubs in Liverpool close, while doing everything it can to avoid a national lockdown and closing schools. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he's trying to take a balanced approach. Other countries are doing the same. France hinted it's about to impose further targeted restrictions after a leap in cases and hospitalizations. On Saturday, authorities in Paris reported 27,000 new cases in just the previous 24 hours, a record all year. In Spain, Socialist Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez invoked emergency powers to prevent travel in and out of Madrid, overruling the local conservative government, which had favored neighborhood-level lockdowns. In Belgium, The number of diagnosed cases last week was 89% higher than the previous week. 
Germany on Monday added Munich to a growing list of coronavirus red zones, which triggers a series of new restrictions. Munich's bars and restaurants will be required to stop serving alcohol after 10 p.m., and mask wearing will now be mandatory and enforced for all pedestrians. In my daily quest for a silver lining, let's turn to South America. When Peru closed Machu Picchu back on March 15th, a Japanese boxing instructor named Jesse Takayama was on the brink of achieving his lifelong dream. The 26-year-old had flown all the way from Osaka to visit the ancient ruins, arriving at base camp of Aguas Calientes the night before the site was shut down. Seven months later, he's been stuck there. His patience has paid off. Over the weekend, the Peruvian government reopened Machu Picchu, but just for Jesse, giving him a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity to tour the Inca Citadel with no one else around. Number three, Roberta McCain, an independent-minded oil heiress who was married to one of the Navy's highest-ranking officers and who displayed characteristic pluck when she took to the presidential campaign trail at age 96 on behalf of her son, John McCain, died yesterday at her home here in Washington. She was 108 years old. Her daughter-in-law, Cindy McCain, announced the death on Twitter. Mrs. McCain was the gregarious and stylish center of gravity for her family, which was at the center of American military and political power for more than half a century. Her father-in-law, John McCain Sr., a four-star Navy admiral, commanded forces in the Pacific during World War II. Her husband, John McCain Jr., another four-star Navy admiral, led the U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965 and commanded U.S. forces in the Pacific during the Vietnam War. Emma Brown notes in an obituary that in 1967, she and her husband were in London preparing for a dinner party at the home of the Iranian ambassador when they learned that their son, John III, a Navy pilot in Vietnam, had been shot down over Hanoi. The McCains went on with that dinner, sharing the news with no one. John McCain III endured isolation and torture for the next five and a half years as a POW. Mrs. McCain, who could only wonder about her son's mental and physical condition, remained stoic. In 2008, when I first met her, she was the most fun member of the McCain campaign to be around. To the dismay of some of her son's handlers, I should say many of her son's handlers, she was the straightest talking member of McCain's Straight Talk Express. She'd appear at rallies, drawing crowds with her snow-white hair, two-inch heels, and brassy reputation. Whenever John McCain's critics questioned whether he was too old to serve as president, he was 72 on Election Day 2008, He just introduced them to Roberta. After 48 years of marriage, Roberta's husband had a heart attack on a transatlantic flight home to Washington and died in 1981. Afterwards, she and her twin sister, who died in 2011, spent months each year traveling the world. When they couldn't find a car rental agency willing to rent a pair of women in their late 80s, a car, they bought one, a Mercedes Baby Benz. They drove it around from Munich to Kazakhstan to Uzbekistan and other places. She kept the car in Europe until 2006, and then she shipped it home to Washington. She then took the baby Benz and drove it solo across the country to deliver the car to a great nephew who lived in San Francisco. Along the way, she picked up a speeding ticket for driving 112 miles per hour in northern Arizona. In her 90s, Mrs. McCain would spend three hours every Tuesday morning at the National Gallery of Art or the Freer Gallery of Art here, whose collection of Chinese porcelain she particularly admired. Through it all, 
She never lost her spunk. Asked by Vogue a few years back to explain her longevity, good health, and general fearlessness, she shrugged and told the magazine, quote, I don't do anything I'm supposed to do. I don't exercise, and today I've already eaten a half a box of caramel popcorn. Honey, I've had a dream life, and it was all luck. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, October 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.